Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition where we explore books, authors, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Jason Gale, co-founder of Catholic Studies Academy, and today I'm joined again with Dr. Richard Kelly, lecturer in theology for CSA. Our topic today is Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, uh, his legacy, and an exploration of his contribution to theology. And so, Dr. Buzikelli, maybe a, a good place to begin, uh, I think, is to kind of look at the, the caricatures of Benedict XVI, you know, because, uh, you know, he experienced kind of a, or from other people's labelings a lot of times, whether it was before the council, at the council, or after the council, uh, he's been kind of called everything in between liberal and, can, you know, ultra-conservative. Yeah, those characters are absolute nonsense. I, I don't even know the guy they're talking about. I, I have no idea who this guy is. Um, so, first of all, you know, the caricature of um, Ratzinger as a, well, the most, the really, the really common one, right, that people, probably what most people think of, is Ratzinger as arch-conservative, mm-hmm. um, whatever, whatever that is supposed to mean, right? Like he has lots of conservatives under him or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, as, as this sort of, as this sort of uber conservative um, reactionary, you know, he wants to turn the church back into the middle ages kind of guy. But, but worse than, worse than this is the character is that he's cold, he's heartless. He's all about the rigidity of uh, dogmatic assertions mm-hmm. Um, and doesn't care at all about the human heart. He has no. He doesn't have a pastoral bone in his body. That's absurd. Like, <laughs> if you think that, you've never read anything he's written, ever. Particularly right? his uh, first encyclical, "God is Love." Right. 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 <laughs> Deus Caritas. So, like that, or um, his first major work, right? Introduction to Christianity. Jim. You obviously didn't read that book. Yeah. Um, the um, you know so like if you read if you read uh, pick up anything written by Joseph Ratzinger now let's say written by Joseph Ratzinger as Joseph Ratzinger in particular right so that's because that's where you're seeing his own mind rather than him executing a duty he has sure. um, from an ecclesiological point of view right so let's distinguish between how he functions in his office as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Mm-hmm. And then later as Pope, of course, prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is a far narrower um, task, right, than than that of the Pope. But let's distinguish even from being the Pope, right, to, to him as a theologian. You mm-hmm. can't pick up anything that he's written uh, and read – this may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much of one mm-hmm. – read more than a page or two, right, without coming across the word love. I'm just saying, right? I mean, it, it, it's the word he, next to God, right? Next to Christ, yeah. the word love is probably the word that you find most often in, uh, in Ratzinger's writing. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just saying that's, he's always talking about love. For him, uh, he, so he, he sees the, um, he sees the declaration in, um, in, you know, in the f- first letter of John, right? God is love as um, as a metaphysical assertion about God, right? Mm-hmm. Now, by saying this, of course, he doesn't mean that that 
the human emotion of love is God. That's not at all what he means. And of course, if you bother to read Deus Caritas Est, you'll, you'll, it'll be a lot clearer to you, right? But, um, but what he means is that in his essence, God is the act, God is, is an eternal act of love, right? Mm-hmm. The way, um, the way he puts it is, uh, essentially a, uh, an eternal dynamism of giving and receiving. Yeah. Right. That that the 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 interrelationality of the persons of the Trinity. Okay. Um, and that it's and that human beings are made in the image and likeness of that God. So um, the only proper way to really understand here is a, here is directly in continuity, of course, with John Paul II. Sure. Right. The only proper way to understand human beings is through the lens of love. Right. Through that hermeneutic of love. Because um, that that's how we discover what being a person is all about, right? Mm-hmm. And here you have to remember, and uh, Ratzinger is very clear on this in many places, including, so not only early in his career in um, Introduction to Christianity, but much later, right? He still holds the view, uh, and Deus Caritas Est is, is um, I, I think it's a great and important encyclical, right? Because it... It comes. It shows the continuity of his thinking from the early, from the early days, right up through the time that he was pope. Uh, particularly on this issue, he's looking at the. Um, or he's remembering that you know that in the early councils, right, this is where the term person actually came to be used in the way that we use it now. Today, yeah. Even remotely, right? So there was this word in Latin, persona, and this word in Greek, prosopon, right? So these words were around, but they had a very different meaning back then than they do now, right? Back then, the terms prosopon and person both meant roughly the same thing, namely a a face or uh, an outward appearance or uh, a theatrical mask was actually the primary reference, right? Mm -hmm. So in drama... When a person was on stage, uh, he would hold the uh, the mask up to tell you um, something about his inner state, okay? Um, Happy, okay. sad. And so you know the symbol for drama, right? Sure. There's the two masks. Th- those masks are, are personae or prosopoi, okay? Now, that was the original term, but later under the in the Christological controversies in the early church, those terms came to be appropriated by the fathers to indicate the distinct their distinct relational terms within God. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um so God is seen, right, as this eternal interrelationality. And um and we're made in the image and likeness of that, right? So that we, to be a person, right? To be a person is uh, is to be made, uh, is to exist in and for uh, and as a term of love, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of the hallmark of Ratzinger's whole theological approach. Beyond that, I would say that Ratzinger is very sensitive to, um, to both continuity and development, right? And he has a, a, a theological habit of mind in which he's particularly adept, right? More so than probably the vast majority of um, of practicing theologians that you would encounter, right? 
at being able to identify the um, the central dogmatic concern in any given dispute, right? Mm -hmm. Peel away the layers of the onion and see what is the enduring dogmatic significance of any particular problem. And in this way, then, always to find his footing in the theological debate of the time. So he doesn't get, he's not easily rattled, right? Where most of us will look at a particular problem and we'll say, this, you know, the sky is falling. It looks like everything's collapsing <laughs> around us. Ratzinger very calmly, um, you know, looks at the problem and says, well, at this particular council, at this particular time, what they were arguing over was X, okay? Uh, and they said this because they said what they said at the time, right? Because this is these are the metaphysical presumptions they were working with, and these are the positions they were addressing that had that 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 were making these kinds of arguments. Now, in the contemporary period, right, where we find ourselves today, what's the argument that gives rise to this particular problem that now that now intersects with that event of the past, right, and that earlier articulation? And so what he's doing is he's peeling the onion, right? And he's getting down to what is in the middle. And there's, mm -hmm. and unlike a real onion, there actually is something in the middle. Right? <laughs> and he's, he's finding that for us. Um, so, you know, in my view, um, the Ratzinger, the Benedict papacy, okay, mm -hmm. was critically important um, historically because of the time of confusion that we've lived in. In fact, uh, in our last discussion where we talked about John Paul II, right, um, one question that might have been asked would be like, what as Pope was the most important thing that John Paul II um, did? I would probably say naming Ratzinger as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith um, was probably the most important thing that, that he did as Pope. And I think that he would probably have readily admitted that because we know that in many instances, um, Ratzinger had asked to retire and John Paul II refused to let him retire. He said literally to him, I can't do this without you. Yeah. So um, it was, I think, really that acumen that Ratzinger possessed to, you know, to, to always to always see the enduring theological Con the, the, the enduring um, dogmatic content of any theological position, of any doctrinal teaching, right? Um, that that made him the man for the time, mm -hmm. both during the papacy of John Paul II and during his own papacy. He was able to kind of right the ship, right? To kind of steer through the, the storm of the late 20th, early 21st century. Even when you look at kind of the church's, the church's actions and what she is currently discussing or, or putting out an encyclical about or a papal statement. I mean, a lot of times, you know, it is uh, reactionary to something. So many of the councils in the church are reactionary to some heresy that was being perpetuated at the time in that sense. You know, so even when you look at the 20th century, I mean, you look at some of the, if you if you look at it through the, the lens of being reactionary, you could see it as a great time of confusion out there. I mean, you know, even the, the act of Paul VI issuing the credo of the people of God. Uh -huh. like you have, <laughs> you, you have that was a, a great uh, document. 
right right yeah yeah it's an absolutely beautiful document but but when you look at it in the through the lens of being reactionary it's amazing that the pope had to issue a creed you know here's what we believe you know why would he do that well because we were having much confusion about yeah. what we actually right. believed you know and then you have you know so I mean, the the fact that they had to even kind of go back to kind of this simplistic formula simplistic presentation of the faith uh, because there was so much confusion and i think even when you look at you know the the writings of, of cardinal ratzinger uh, you could see you know glimpses of that i mean the fact that he you know god is love uh, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, some of his writings. You know, the, the the topics are these kind of kind of first premises uh, to to Christianity that that he's writing about. Introduction mm-hmm. to cat. You know, to Catholic Christianity, like or introduction to Christianity, like these these uh, these books are are very uh, foundational, um, mm-hmm. which I think you know points to the time that you know he was living in. You know, and again, we talked about this in our last. That, you know, modernism was still, you know, and is still today, you know, around very much so, you know, so uh, being, you know, approaching it from that very, like you said, to peel the onion back and get at the core, you know, because uh, we could sit there and, you know, have all these different layers on the outside. But if we don't have that common starting point, we don't begin with that core, everything else will just kind of, you know, get lost in uh, in the discussion. Right, right. So I think, you know, one of the things, you know, that I would say, you know, contributions to theology is his ecclesiology, his his contribution on kind of the church's understanding of herself. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and one of my, you know, favorite books out there, you know, is, you know, when he is the uh, Pilgrim Fellowship of Faith, you know, when he when he's talking about uh, the church's, you know, uh, communion. I think that's one of the one of, uh, you know, his his most important writings on the church in that way. Um, uh, you know, so I think, you know, his development of ecclesiology, you know, beginning with, you know, not just because there was kind of this, uh, again, if we were to look at it through kind of a reactionary lens, you know, there was this, this kind of notion going around where kind of the, the starting place for us to understand the church is the church is the people of God, period. You know, mm-hmm. uh, everything else is kind of secondary, to this yeah. to this foundational point, whereas you know Pope Benedict, he very much you know began with the church's you know mystery, um, but also that the church's communion, you know, and again going, I think that's why you know it it, it fits in well with you know his focus on love, um, because mm-hmm. of his understanding of you know trinitarian love, and not just the human person as made in that image and likeness, but the church being the bride participates you know in that communion in a very real way. I think we can say a lot about that. First, he, he writes a lot about the church, mm-hmm. right? It's one of his major topics. And um, but one thing that I find really interesting about um, about Ratzinger in his ecclesiology is his recovery of patristic concepts, mm. right? So if you think about why, like, why does that become a project at all, right? The recovery of patristic concepts about the church in uh, the late 20th and early 20th centuries, 21st centuries. Well, it's because during the Protestant Reformation in particular, um, much of that material was obscured by the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. So if you if you look at the creedal statements that came out of the Protestant Reformation, right, as those churches sort of constituted themselves, sure, those, sure. well, let's call them ecclesial communities. That's right. Theologically proper. <laughs> 
as they constituted themselves, what was unusual, right, in comparison to creedal assertions up to that point, is that they they spilled an awful lot of ink on the question of the church itself, mm-hmm. right? So if, if you think about the fundamental problem in, in uh, Protestantism, right, it's not actually, um, uh, first of all, I mean, it's not that these aren't issues, right, but it's not, first of all, the question of, of justification or soteriology, right, sure. exactly. Um, it's, it's a question of the church, and yeah. and you see and you see this you know that I'm right if you read the early the early statements from these communities as they constituted themselves they spend a lot of time affirming as dogmatic right these these particular theologies of the church then what happens right in the counter reformation period and going forward in catholic thought is a reaction essentially against those ecclesiologies, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, we didn't start this fight, okay? <laughs> uh, is that the Protestants, the Protestants came up with certain articulations of, you know, the church as the um, society of all those who uh, affirm, you know, this thing about Jesus Christ or something, and it becomes referenced to the people themselves, right? Yeah, and to yeah. their faith stance. But the church itself has no ontological status of its own, right, in much of these Protestant ecclesiological views. Or it's the community of all those who have who have um, been pre-ordained uh, to go to heaven, right? Right, right. Uh, and so you could be sitting next to someone in your church who's been baptized and so forth. And for all you know, he isn't actually a member of the church at all. He just outwardly appears to be right because he's not going to go to heaven. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that you know that's that's not a view that the church that the Catholic Church had accepted either, right? So you have all these competing ideas of church, and then the emphasis in um, Catholicism is to return to this notion that there is an ontological structure to the church, an ontological reality to it, mm-hmm. and that that ontological reality is bound up with its visible form which involves apostolic succession of bishops and seven sacraments and so forth, right? But then what, what becomes of that, right, is that is that there's an overemphasis upon the structural and magisterial dimension of the church. And other aspects of the church that had not been directly at issue during the Protestant Reformation, are they, 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 they sort of fall away, right, from in our in the way that we talk about the church so this notion of church as koinonia right mm-hmm. as communion um is um is something that, ne- that later needs to be recovered one of the reasons it needs to be recovered and this tells us something a lot this tells us a lot about um about some of the fathers of the second vatican council including uh including ratzinger mm-hmm. right if you want to say that he's a father of the council, of course, he was only a peritus there, not a bishop, but he was a father in the sense that Athanasius of Alexandria was a father of the Council of Nicaea, right? He wasn't the archbishop of Alexandria at the time. He was only the archdeacon of Alexandria, right? So he served he served for Alexander of Alexandria, the same kind of role that Ratzinger served for Cardinal Frings. So um, 
the um, you know the, the, there was a there was a sense with Ratzinger as well as with someone like uh, Yves Congar, right, and and many others mm-hmm. uh, that there's this whole other dimension of Christianity, uh, Orthodox Christianity, that we had not really spent a lot of time with for several hundred years after we'd kind of taken a hiatus following following the Council of Florence, right, from serious attempts to restore communion between East and West, right? Mm-hmm. We had this whole Eastern dimension of Christianity that needed to be taken seriously, that was true church, and um, and and that retained the fullness of apostolic succession, um, and it it preserved dimensions of its understanding of what Christianity meant and of what the church is that were still meaningful, right? Mm. So um, part of this was the emphasis that the church is constituted through, so if, if we take seriously the idea of church as body of Christ, right? Uh, and going back to Pius the Twelfth, that that the that the the body of Christ is not simply uh, a sort of mystical idea, right? That when we talk about the mystical body of Christ, it's not just a metaphor, yeah, right? Or a spiritual reality that or has spiritual no, reality, yeah, yeah. but that but that it's a sacramentally constituted reality mm-hmm. that occurs through Eucharistic communion. That is precisely because we're one with Jesus Christ in flesh and blood, that we're one with one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? This idea was part of the patristic tradition and was clearly, right? Uh, and if you want to learn about that in a hurry, I would just tell you to read the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or for that matter, the Gospel of John. Right. Um, So but this this idea was never um, was never obscured in in Eastern Christianity. And uh, and so with Ratzinger, so this is one of the hallmarks of his thought. Again, uh, he had a deep sensitivity to Eastern thought, Mm -hmm. again, with this idea of, of being able to see the enduring content right of any dogmatic assertion. He had this notion of the whole tradition. Sure. Right, not some narrow, not some narrow selection of it. Right, some not some narrow cross section of it, which one could easily arrive at if if we were to take our starting point. Right, if our point of departure was the Counter Reformation period, in which the discussion was almost exclusively uh, of Western theological questions. Right, right. If that's our point of departure, we can come away with a rather narrow understanding of what constitutes orthodoxy. And of course, you can see that very clearly in, I mentioned the last time we talked, the sede vacantist um, mm. uh, people out there, right, who would consider um, Benedict a, an anti-pope uh, and a heretic, okay, mm. because their point of departure is entirely, exclusively, right, the, post, the post-Reformation the uh, period in which there isn't anything other than that. I mean, from their point of view, that's that's the the whole. That's what Catholicism is. Yeah. But um, but you're being ignorant then of everything that happened in the church before the council before the Council of Trent, right? So it, it's a very similar mistake that's being made with the people who talk about, you know, the council, uh, meaning the Second Vatican Council, as if that's the only council there's ever been, as if that's the only thing the church started in 1962 or something, right? <laughs> 
that's absurd, but it's but it the idea that the church essentially started in at the Council of Trent is also absurd. Right. And that's not really their position, but tacitly. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think, with you know, yeah, like you said, with, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, he, he very much brings in those ideas. But I think, you know, really develops and you could see his, you know, um, you know, his fingerprints on the, 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 the council documents on the church, Lumen Gentium and uh, uh-huh. Guardian at Spes as well. But I, but I think, you know, in, in particular, you know, that his his expertise you know in the early in the early church fathers bringing them into this and showing uh, uh showing those early early church father uh understandings of uh, of who the church is and not mm-hmm. just this kind of modern notion that's you know reactionary against protestantism or this kind of you know there was this you know whole movement after the council of just saying well it's the people you know, of completely being reductionistic when it comes to the church, you know, of denying its uh, uh, supernatural form or something. Yeah, like and that. Ratzinger re- responds uh, vehemently against that position, right? Oh yeah. So, um, because you know that that's a that's a completely anthropocentric ecclesiology, right? Sure. But again, characteristics of Ratzinger's thought, he's highly Christocentric. Sure. Okay. Um, in fact, if you look at his dissertation, right, um, he wrote on the theology of history of St. Bonaventure. Mm-hmm. And St. Bonaventure's theology of history is really interesting because, uh, in fact, it's not completely novel, right? I mean, Bonaventure's theology of history is similar to the theology of history that you would find among, among you know, any, any cross-section of medieval thinkers of the mm-hmm. time. Highly Christological, right? So right. in other words... Christ is the center of history. All history is pointing toward him that comes before and referencing back to him that comes after, right? He really Mm -hmm. is the center of history. Um, And so if he's the center of history, certainly he has to be the center of the church. Sure. (laughs) Right? Uh, uh, So it's 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 not you and me, right? Like we individuals. Yeah, um, yeah. And and so, you know, he you could see then in his the spirit of the liturgy, right, which is uh which is actually taking up um decades later Romano Gordini's book, right? Right. And, and it's it, it's a te- it's a book that prepares you to read Romano Gordini's book, right? And to and to read it uh in the and to read it in the context of a new liturgical setting. Right, because remember when 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 Gordini wrote that book, it, it was the uh, it was what we would now call the extraordinary form, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, not even the extraordinary form. It was an earlier version, even than that, right? But but for all intents and purposes, the extraordinary form of the liturgy, you know. So Ratzinger is writing Spirit of the Liturgy in what was it, 1987? He wrote that or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. By now, the liturgy looked pretty bad. I mean, it looked like it looked a lot like it looks now with, you know, there were a lot of guitars. People had built these churches with the altar in the center where people were looking at each other. And Ratzinger was actually saying, like, you can't. That's just not that doesn't make any sense. It's <laughs> just communistic um, architecture. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not about us. Yeah, it's not about where we are. It's about where we're going. Right. Uh, and where we're going is in as he's very clear about this. Right. Um, 
he talks about this at, at length in other places. Uh, the language of St. Paul, all right, in when he talks about the body of Christ, is mm-hmm. in Christ Jesus. In, not with, right? But in. But in, in Christ Jesus, right? We're going into the Father. We're going to the bosom of the Father. So we're taken up into Jesus Christ, and as Christ ascends, we are assumed into the presence, right, before the throne of God. Uh, and that's the journey, that's the journey of the liturgy. For the altar to be in the center of the community with everyone looking at one another, and the priest as being sort of on a, on a uh, as just being one of us, right, the, the MC in the crowd, is utterly foreign for Benedict, right, uh, to, the, to the actual intention behind the liturgy. The liturgy is a pilgrimage. It's an exodus from the self to the other, but not just the horizontal other, you, right, but the ultimate other, right, so the vertically ascendant other, which is God. Uh, and that's um, – so the, the, the orientation of the liturgy needs to be different. So he was a strong uh, proponent, right, of of um, celebrating the Mass ad orientum mm-hmm. for that reason. Yeah, and I think it, I think that can really that that I that idea that you just said there can really characterize much of Ratzinger's work. It's not about me, you know. It's right. a, it's about Christ. He actually wrote quite a bit also on catechetics, and particularly in a lot of places, the state of catechetics. Uh, and uh-huh. his lamenting of the state of catechetics, where you know he even you know um, derides some of the uh, uh, current methodologies as just saying, well, it's just this experiential uh, kind of notion of yourself, where the catechist has to stop at the immediate experience of the learner, that the catechist can't move past that. Yeah, and the whole purpose it. is to somehow validate that, right? Yeah, 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 to validate your your experience, you know. And again, it, it could be also characterized, we'll probably do a whole other podcast on this, is kind of that anthropocentric view of, of not just the church, but of, of catechesis. And also, you know, and this is, again, one of the hallmarks of, of Benedict's thought is his liturgical contribution, that it's mm-hmm. not about the community, you know. And, and at the time, you know, he was, he was combating much... Uh, 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 many other, even, you know, cardinals, you know, princes of the church, you know, who were saying, I think it was uh, Cardinal Daniels, you know, mm-hmm. who talked about the, the uh, of Belgium, who said, you know, like the liturgy is this community's expression of themselves and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just this complete, you know, kind of navel gazing, you know, where we gather together and stare at each other until we have an experience of God. You know, uh, <laughs> it was kind of just this complete turning in on self, whereas, you know, Ratzinger's, you know, kind of whether it be his ecclesiology or his, his writings on catechetics or his liturgical things, it was, you know, kind of just a reorientation back to Christ that, you know, uh, you won't find the answers in yourself, but that, you know, this, right. it, it, it's there in Christ. And for him, it wasn't it wasn't even kind of that Protestant notion of, well, you know, we're in Christ together. But no, that that's a that's a that's a, a, a baptismal reality. Is that mm-hmm. you know you are in Christ. You know you're not. You know nobody nobody can really follow Christ into heaven. You know we can't be. Uh, no followers of Christ have ever gone to heaven. But people that are 
united in Christ. Right. You know, we can't just take Christ as a good philosopher and somebody to good and follow in that sense, but that we, in reality, have to be united to him. You know, that's yeah, that's exactly the point. Right. That's exactly the point that we see in John's gospel, which, you know, for me, like, that's my favorite gospel. I spent a lot of time in John's gospel. And so does Ratzinger. Right. So he mm-hmm. th- that's his gospel. And I say that not as if he doesn't like the others, but, you know, <laughs> like he, he, he thinks he thinks the way John thinks. It's very high theology. Uh, It's very high theology. And um, in fact, you know, in the Eastern churches, right, what do they call John? They call him the theologian, right? Yeah. And our, our, uh, we're used to this this phrase, uh, John the divine, but we forget that the the divine, the term divine is is just another term for theologian, right? Right. Um, So you can call me. um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Bolza Kelly the divine. In John's gospel, right, during the during the Last Supper discourses, you see this whole idea come out where, you know, Jesus had always said, where I am going, you cannot follow. Mm-hmm. Right. But now he suddenly says, rise, let us go. And why does he say that? How does he say that? Yeah. He says it because he's provided the means now. He's given them the oneness with himself through Eucharistic communion. Yeah. And you can see this reflected, of course, in what has become known as the high priestly prayer, right? Uh, where he prays to the Father, they might all be one as you and I are one, with with uh, with I in them and you in me, right? And th- 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 that whole thing, the interpenetration of persons. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, the what you know what would what the fathers would have referred to as the the pedicoresis of the persons of the trinity right the, the sort of circumcision right mm-hmm. of the persons of the trinity now comes to be applied to uh human beings in and through jesus christ through eucharistic communion uh and this becomes the account then of um not only the reality of the church but the whole soteriological movement the whole movement of salvation right where that's precisely how we come to be saved. Yeah, and I think even when you when you look at it just from the the appearance of it, you know, the, the fact that we use, you know, and you know, Ratzinger's clear on this in his ecclesiology. Notice we use the same words for church that we also use of the Eucharist, namely communion in the body of Christ. Right. You know, why is this? You know, and he goes in his writings are you know very beautiful in going going in and exploring kind of that that understanding, like, you know, there's a reason why we use the same words to describe both the Eucharist and the church, um, that the two are, are that, that closely related. That idea of communion and holy communion is at the center of, of, of kind of the, what it, what it is we're trying to accomplish, you know, as Christians, is to enter into that communion. Right, that's right. So for Ratzinger, as with the Eastern Christians, right, the koinonia ecclesiology mm-hmm. uh, is inseparable from Eucharistic ecclesiology. And that's something that, um, you know, that's something that we can lose sight of very easily, where the term koinonia is um, kind of denuded of its real meaning, of its metaphysical import, yeah. and it becomes sociological. Now we're back to where many of the Protestants ended up, right? But we also have to be careful that our Eucharistic theology is robust, and that it's not just a sort of metaphorical, symbolic kind of representation of how much we like each other. 
right? <laughs> um, or or how much we have in common with each other, right? But instead, the actual, if we go back to Ignatius of Antioch, right, mm -hmm. the actual cause of our unity. And, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's funny because, um, I mean, it's precisely this that allows us to speak of sister churches who nonetheless are not in full juridical communion right. with, right? right? Because, in fact, um, the, if they do have a valid Eucharist, if they do really have, right, the true presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, mm -hmm. there's only one Christ, and thus there's only one Eucharistic communion. Yeah. Wherever it's celebrated, those people are united to Christ, and if united to Christ, then to one another. There's only one church. Uh, so even though they're not, they're not perfectly juridically united to, to, to us, right, nonetheless, they are ontologically united to us. And yeah. uh, right, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting aspect, especially when you, when you get into contrasting that with, say, you know, kind of the Protestant understanding of kind of this spiritual communion of, well, we all believe in Christ, you know, in, in this kind of invisible, non-ontological way. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you have you have the reality that is with these other, while they're not, like you said, juridically. Uh, uh, in, in communion with us ontologically they're there you know right it's there they're valid you know they have uh, uh, that communion with Christ in this you know uh, in a similar way that we do you know so I think you know with John Paul you know with 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 the the, the whole Benedict era and, and also I mean it's like you said it's very difficult to, to separate him from John Paul II because the two were so so close you know for you know mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know Oh, 26 years, you know, almost, you know, John Paul II brought him in as prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith almost right away to, to head that and take that over. Uh, now, one of the criticisms, though, was that they didn't take a firm enough hand with dissent, you know, allowing right. some, you know, heresy to thrive in colleges and universities, that uh, there was very little formal disciplinary intervention from Rome, in spite, though, they did, you know, issue a number of uh, statements condemning positions and even refuting some authors by name uh, against that. Um, you know, to what to what extent, you know, maybe is this is this criticism fair that they didn't take a hard enough stand against kind of these uh, heretical positions and teachings? Yeah, well, I think it's absolutely fair. Yeah. Okay, so there's no there's no question in my mind that what's being described here is historically factual. Okay, there, there there's heresy by people in positions of influence in the church went for the most part un uh, unchecked yeah. for for 20 you know 30 years right and long i mean probably longer than that right but now that the, the what the response from the magisterium was to reaffirm what the church in fact teaches as orthodox okay the problem is that by not disciplining formally the people who were promoting contrary views. Uh, and I don't mean contrary in the sense of, you know, like um, uh, permissible, but but not, you know, but minority opinions. I mean, right. incompatible <laughs> views, right? Like heresy. Yeah. The problem with not formally disciplining this is that it tacitly, it tacitly makes uh, people think you're not really serious, right? That Sure. 
that you say these things, yes, and that's the official line. You can you could see this actually. This is a very common position for Good Hold these days. That's the official line, but it's not really required. I mean, you know, it's okay for Catholics to hold different views. Yeah. So that that's the impression that it that it leaves. And I think they can they can be criticized for that. Uh, but why why did this happen? I think mm -hmm. is the more important part of that question, right? I think it's because in the period leading up to the Second Vatican Council, there was a you remember in the previous discussion we um we talked about a little bit about Henri de Lubac, right? And Garigou Lagrange. So, you know, that period uh represented a rather stifling time in terms of theological um theological development. If we look at the 20th century, we can see, in my view, a golden age of theology, mm -hmm. um, not seen since the 13th century, right? So, you know, just as theology was exploding during the time of um, Albert the Great, right, um, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, Duns Scotus, so in the 20th century, there was that kind of an explosion. Mm -hmm of, you know, revitalized, vibrant theological discourse. Um, and I think, in all fairness, for centuries to come, 20th century theology is going to be um, a significant touchstone mm -hmm. for theology, right? Uh, we're not, like, we'll be reading Introduction to Christianity for 500 years, in my opinion, I, I, I believe that unless, of course, God deigns to bring an end to it. <laughs> but, you know, the, <laughs> which which might happen. Who knows? <laughs> so. <laughs> so anyway, during this time, right, while the while the resource ma and adjournamento were 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 trying to move theology forward. There were also those trying very hard to undermine uh, those developments and sort of stagnate theology mm -hmm. in a kind of reactionary, anti-modernist um, neo-scholasticism, right? Now, I say that, I, I use that phraseology, right, as a, like, disparaging when considered as a cluster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, too, am anti-modernist and in many ways neo-scholastic, Right. Um, <laughs> yes, I would characterize myself as the same way. Right, but but when but when this means like a fearfulness of um, a fearfulness of of sort of development of of maybe you know rethinking things of of looking further back than we're used to looking and and kind of rediscovering ideas in the fathers, that becomes a problem. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that you know, Ratzinger and Wojtyla, as well as Balthazar and uh, De Lubach and many others, right, from this period, oh, yeah. had been held under a pall of suspicion, okay? And um, people had attempted to, people had attempted to bring uh, heresy charges against them. Mm -hmm. I think they were very sensitive to being that way themselves. You know, if I think of myself as uh, a professor, right, and I criticize myself, I think probably one of my problems had been that I wasn't quite stern enough with my students. I was a little bit more um, 
permissive of late papers and so forth, probably because I myself had been <laughs> bad about those things when I was younger. And I think that um, th this is my explanation for it. I really think that given that they themselves had been held under such suspicions yeah. uh, and that it made their lives miserable, right, that they were very reluctant to take a heavy hand uh, toward dissenters themselves. Now, I do think, though, that they're rightly criticized for that, because while I wouldn't want to see a stranglehold placed on theological discussion, I agree that that's really a bad place for the church to be. Nonetheless, right, there are times when we can clearly identify that someone has crossed the line into heresy, um, not only in a sort of you know, not only in sort of a uh, uh, a material, accidental kind of way. Right, I mean, that, right, right. Most theologians will make theological mistakes along the way, and we'll, we'll say things that we then think better of and, and want to uh, backpedal on or even completely retract. But, right, but there are times when the teaching of the church is very clear and has recently been reaffirmed, and still you persist. And yet, there you are. Um, still at the pulpit or or teaching students, and why does that change? Well, there were certain cases in which we had condemnations, but but really, you could probably count them on two hands uh, over the course of the entire, you know, that entire thirty some odd year span, right? Mm -hmm. The number of times someone had been formally removed. But I think we have a logic as to why, you know, why that was the case, even if we don't agree with the prudential judgment of it. It would have been better to take a somewhat stronger hand, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it's uh, Tracy Rowland's book about Cardinal uh -huh. Ratzinger, a really good book. And she, she talks about this in the beginning, how Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, how he went, you know, before the council, at the council, you know, he was kind of in this quote-unquote liberal camp, you know, and it was a, a quite scandalous, you know, when he became head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith because he was not a, he was not known as a Thomist, and it was just unheard of to have somebody who wasn't a Thomist head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. But then, you know, when he becomes Pope, you know, his you know the 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 media gave him the name of the you know the Pope's Rottweiler. You know, it was just this kind of you know it wasn't this, it wasn't something within him. But it was something that was being kind of casted from the outside of people saying, you know, he, you know, here's who he is, you know, kind of casting these names on him. And, and he's saying, well, you know, I'm just I, I, I'm searching for the truth. I'm explaining the Catholic faith in the best way that I know how. Uh, and I'm, you know, trying to reach, uh, you know, and, and I believe in this development of doctrine uh, with this, you know, what he became another, you know, kind of hallmark of his thought was this hermeneutic of continuity that we, that, you know, we can proceed in this way, but we have to do so in a thoughtful and faithful way. Right. I mean, it kind of takes us back to the earlier question of these, these, uh, the stereotypes, uh, you know, this character, these caricatures of, of Benedict versus the reality. What was it? Um, Fides et Ratio, right? John Paul II at one point um, mentions a number of people who were both great philosophers and great theologians, right? Yeah. What's really remarkable is that many of the people in that list are not Thomists. Yeah. Uh, right? In fact, 
some of them aren't even Roman Catholic, right? Some of them are, are like Russian Orthodox. He mentions um, Vladimir Lasky, right, is one of them. Sure. And one of them is um, one of them is uh, Antony Rosmini, right? Who okay. was who was actually um, censured uh, earlier on, right? Like a hundred years earlier, he'd been censured, and he'd been censured. This is really interesting, right? In the post uh, in that Leonine period, right, where after the whole Thomistic revival thing began, mm-hmm. and Thomas became sort of this reference point. Which interestingly enough, and we should have a conversation about this sometime, but that that it wasn't really like that before, you know, it wasn't quite it wasn't quite like that before we had the sort of Thomistic hegemony in the church. After that it became people sort of took Leo in, in this direction where it was like, well, being Thomist is the test of orthodoxy. And um and Rosemary was not a Thomist. Mm-hmm. Now it turns out he was influential in um the in the formation of uh, declaration of the Immaculate Conception as dogmatic. Okay, he was a contributor in that, mm-hmm. but um, but he wasn't a Thomist, and so he was later sort of censured, right, for a number of um, theses that he had put forth in some of his own writings, which were not Thomistic theses, right? Understandably, because he wasn't a Thomist. Right. But John Paul II mentions him as. Um, as one of the great philosophers and theologians, right? <laughs> so this caused a bit of a stir and led to led to a um, a dubia being put forth. And it was the custom of um, of the magisterium under John Paul II to actually, you know, respond to dubia. And <laughs> no comment. And so the the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith eventually issued a declaration on this. In which they just addressed this problem. So they, he, what what Ratzinger did in um, in that response was to sort of place in context the Thomistic anti-modernist movement and the historical position of Antony Rosemini, and to say that these condemnations made sense from within a Thomistic frame of reference, which at the time had its particular purpose, right? Mm-hmm. But when we when we read uh, Anthony uh, Rosemary on his own terms, we see that these propositions had a different meaning, right? And so we can consider these uh, we can consider these um, these censures to have been transcended, right? And that's that was basically the response. <laughs> when you look at you know John Paul II and you know Pope Benedict and their and their legacy, particularly their contributions to theology. While while they were not, you know, these strict Thomists, they were also not anti-Thomists. But it, but it was that they were, you know, they were not uh, solely reliable uh, uh, on on his thought in that way. Um, but I think you know, and I think when you look at you know, say say the person of like uh, uh, Henri de Lubac, you know, who had you know some you know the, the the criticisms brought against him in the charges, and he was censored so that he w- he wasn't able to teach for several years um mm-hmm. you know I, I think the beautiful thing that you can point to you know uh you know somebody like de lubach is is his his enduring fidelity to the church yeah we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of humani vitae you know you look at somebody like father charles curran uh compared to you know somebody like Henri de lubach you know 
Anudil Bach said, okay, I won't teach. And he didn't teach for, for, for years and years, mm-hmm. and he remained faithful to the church. And in the end, you know, he was, he was vindicated. He was allowed to teach again, and he was allowed to, to work and explore in this way. Uh, you know, and again, you know, it was, a, you know, a sign of his fidelity, you know, and we see that, you know, in contrast uh, to, to, to some other characters in history. You know, I think it's, you know, kind of a, a testament, like you said, you know, when we look at uh, the, the period of the 20th century, kind of when you look at it within kind of the, when you are comparatively to like, you know, say the 13th century, I mean, when, you know, it was, you know, for, for St. Thomas to, to draw on Aristotle, I mean, that was, that was unheard of. That yeah. was, you know, um, it was literally It was literally considered heretical by, by many people. For, for many people, that would be like, that would be like, That'd be like a Catholic deciding, you know, that that he's gonna he's gonna base his theology on Friedrich Nietzsche or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or you know, or you know, Kant, right? So, you know, I think you right. know, it, it's it's very difficult for us, you know, be you know, it's one of those things where you know, when you're looking at you know, kind of a picture and you're so close to it that you can't discern the bigger picture. You know, it's kind of like how how we're looking at the 20th century right now. Uh, yeah, it may it, it may be, you know. 500 years out when, you know, the, the, the church turns and looks at the 20th century like we look at, you know, the 13th century that we can, you know, look more objectively at this. But, you know, the one thing that we can discern right now is that, you know, the contributions of both Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict have been, you know, that of clarity in, in, a, in, a, in yeah. a century, in a century that that was you know, mired and, you know, we're still feeling the effects of the confusion that took place in it, that, you know, when it came, when it came to the, the issues of, you know, whether it be the church or even the human person, how we understand the human person in regards to love and how they're ordered toward God, John Paul II and Pope Benedict, they really stood at the center of that. And and I think, you know, like I said, I think it'll be years before we uh, uh, really understand uh, the contribution uh, that they made to the, uh, to the church in this way. Well, that does it for us today at Take Every Thought Captive. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our discussion today. In the meantime, check us out at catholicstudiesacademy.com. Until then, God bless.